Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 63 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Cheryl L. Bishop, Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Bishop earned her doctorate in social psychology from the University of Texas at Austin in 1989, and since 1996, has also served as faculty at the International Space University in Strasbourg, France. But today, we'll primarily be discussing her new book, Space Habitats and Habitability, Designing for Isolated and Confined Environments on Earth and Space, co-authored with Sandra Hoplick Moosberger and just published by Springer. Bishop joins us from Galveston. Cheryl, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to be here. So first off, what is a social psychologist? Well, a social psychologist is a behavioral scientist that uh, focuses on the whole range of normal human behavior, uh, attitudes, beliefs, personality. We pay attention to everything from birth to death, so it's quite a a broad uh, field. Is there a clinical aspect to social psychology? Not per se. Um, I usually tell people I'm everything but clinical. Uh, We're qualified to identify when behavior or attitudes or beliefs become extreme enough to to be a clinical concern. And at that point, I refer people to my clinical colleagues to do the diagnosis and treatment. So aside from um, medical issues related to space travel, we all know that it's physically taxing and dangerous. And we're aware of the unsolved issues related to radiation. But what's the biggest issue related to an astronaut's mental health while on a mission? As far as I'm concerned, um, the, the major concern is on our long-duration missions. And uh, it's dealing with issues like the isolation and confinement. Um, unlike the expeditionary missions, our short-duration missions, where we have very clear goals, uh, you have a very clear task list, everything is scheduled down to the last minute so you know when you're making progress and that type of thing. Long-duration missions, where you're literally residing in place, are going to be characterized by long periods of boredom and monotony, the same people, the same place, the same things done over and over again. And those are actually a significant risk um, mentally because uh, the countermeasures to boredom and monotony are going to be fairly difficult to put into place. So like a 10-hour flight, even in economy class, is uh, is bad enough when you don't have privacy and you have to wait in line for a toilet that is unsanitary at best. <laughs> How does that compare with the day-to-day operations of life ab- aboard the ISS or even back earlier to the Apollo missions? Well, remember that the Apollo missions were very short-duration missions, so I call those expeditionary missions. And um, they they had a completely different mission profile. When we, when we talk about ISS. Now we're talking about the kind of um, missions that I characterize as long-duration missions because you're 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 staying in place. You're not doing a number of different things that have to be done in a very compressed uh, time frame. The 
kinds of people that do well in the long duration missions are very different than the people who do well in the short duration missions. And um, that's primarily the key focus um, and the difference between those two different profiles. But if you're an economy, and let's say you're two two rows back from the toilet, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes the odor is not great. And is it similar or worse on a spacecraft meant for three, like uh, like the Apollo spacecraft? Yeah. Um, Well, humans have this amazing capacity to habituate to something that they're constantly exposed to. It doesn't matter whether it's odors or sound or or light or those kinds of things. And um, the reason why you don't uh, notice that you uh, – actually – the reason you notice the smell on, on the plane is because you're not constantly being exposed to it. It comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. Each time the door is open and closed to the bathroom and you get a whiff of that odor, it reminds you and it reintroduces that stimuli to your system so then you pay attention to it. On ISS, where they're in the environment all the time, they literally stop smelling whatever odor is present. And so uh, if you want to know if your house smells, leave it for a while and and come back in, and then you're more likely to pay attention to the odors. So we have to be sensitive to the fact that we don't want to introduce odors that might be distasteful or that might remind people of uh, unpleasant events. But people do habituate to the odors that they're surrounded to all the time. So it really isn't that big a problem on ISS until they bring something new on board. So, in other words, you, you really shouldn't have a pot of rutabagas or collard greens. Or so. broccoli. <laughs> or broccoli, yeah. Right. I happen to they love broccoli. They should be cooking broccoli on the station. That's right. But once you are safely on orbit on the ISS, can the astronauts kind of relax? Or is it still emotionally taxing? I mean, do they kind of like always in the back of their mind know, hey, you know, I'm on the cutting edge. You know, is there a woo-woo factor still, a danger factor? <laughs> I think like any dangerous undertaking, there are like periods of high risk and low risk. Um, But I don't think there's ever a period that they believe that there's no risk. I think always in the back of their mind, they realize they're in space and they realize they're in this very fragile uh, habitat that if anything should go wrong, that they're going to be in life-threatening circumstances. So when things are kind of going well and they've got all their tasks done and they have their leisure time scheduled, they take the opportunity to kind of kick back and relax. But it's not the same thing as laying back on your couch here on Earth where the only thing you have to worry about is if you get a phone call that you're going to have to take. So it's always on their mind. How do you define an isolated and confined extreme environment? Uh, Well, there's three parts to that. One is the isolation factor. And the isolation factor uh, is you're you're in a place in which you are physically removed from the presence of other humans and and removed to the extent that you are separated and cannot rejoin for whatever reason. Maybe it's distance, maybe it's the environment doesn't allow you to go outside or, or whatever. So that's that physical separation. Confinement is the this uh, inability to go out or to leave the place that you are now uh, um, residing in or, or stuck in. 
Um, so that sense of confinement is increased by um, the amount of space that you have and your ability to leave it. If you can't leave it, it's going to feel far more confined. And then the extreme part is you are in an environment that is a threat to survival. So when you have all three of those components, you're isolated, you, you are confined, and you are in an environment that has, has an actual threat to your physical survival, then you would be considered an, an ICE environment. Well, the Project Mercury program certainly is a representation of an ICE when they were on orbit. Would you, would you agree? Right. So Absolutely. <laughs> that was the first human uh, spaceflight program from the U.S. and ran from 58 to uh, 63. John Glenn, one of the Mercury 7 pilots, uh, famously remarked on the snug fit of the Mercury spacecraft, quote, you don't get into it, you put it on. <laughs> well, you got to remember that back then, the goal was just to demonstrate, really, that a human could go into space and come back alive. So their, the engineering task was to literally build this armored suit around a human rider, an occupant. The, the uh, early astronauts complained that there was nothing for them to do that they were just, you know, a, a passenger on these on these vessels. Uh, but that was the task, to build this protective suit around uh, a, a ship and send it up and have it come back to show that you, they were going to be able to be physically uh, safe and that they weren't going to go crazy because they were being put into this totally alien environment. So um, it was a snug fit because it was meant to be a snug fit. You write that there is no perfect analog for extraterrestrial habitats, although a stay at the Antarctic Research Station Concordia has many similarities with a long-duration spaceflight. But the greater the perceived risk, the greater will be the sense of confinement and isolation, and the greater the perceived isolation, the greater the challenges placed upon the crew and habitat. So tell us about Concordia. We're going to mention it a bit later, uh, but... Give us a preview of what life might be like at Concordia and why that is such a good good analog for space. Well, Concordia is um, one of the few uh, pure research stations that are located in the Antarctic. And it's even more unique in that it doesn't have a year-round presence like South Pole Station does. Um, it is there primarily to have crews uh, go there as part of a, a research uh, project. They spend their winter over there. They're, everything that they do is in the interest of research and uh, for whatever uh, program that is sponsoring their stay. Um, and that's very, very unique. It is a, a station that is owned and managed by Italy and France. So um, access to Concordia is very restricted. The National Space Agencies are very interested in ground-based research because it's the ground-based research that provides the fundamental scientific knowledge for uh, many things that we are doing in space. We test hardware out here terrestrially. We test crews out here terrestrially. And so uh, these simulation facilities are very critical to, to learning what we need to know before we put crews actually in space. Basically, the focus of all these simulation facilities and ICEs here on Earth is to better understand how to find a crew member, potential crew member, with quote-unquote the right stuff. And what you guys point out in your book, that 
the right stuff is mission dependent. Uh, so in other words, a crew member who might have the right stuff for one type mission might not have the right stuff for another type mission. Is that right? Exactly. That w- This was one of the first aha moments that we had uh, as we were uh, trying to figure out what kind of person do we need to find to send into space. We started out with the right stuff profile because all of the early astronauts were uh, they were test pilots. They were military. Uh, they were highly educated and highly trained. So they were already a select group. And it was not surprising that they all had very common personality characteristics, given that's what they all were. And, and, just, um, and but, for people who are not familiar with that term, that came from... I don't know if, if uh, Tom, Tom Wolfe, who wrote the book, The Right Stuff, he, he, I don't think he originated that, that uh, term, but, but tell us what conventionally is meant by the right stuff, like a, a Chuck Yeager type right stuff <laughs> test pilot. Right. Uh, the, the right stuff profile is a very task-oriented individual. They're very uh, driven. They're very uh, individualistic. Uh, they they are very uh, autonomous. Um, they are focused on uh, uh, goals and getting the job done, and uh, they put all of their energy and pers- to uh, getting those goals accomplished. Um, they uh, typically do not spend a, a lot of time and effort on interpersonal skills because they're so task focused. Okay. Um, so the right stuff guy was one of those. People that you know, it is you give it. You say, "Go, go do X," and they went and did X, and they did X well, and they did it to the best of their ability. And when they got through doing X, they came back and said, "X is done." Uh, so, and those were that's what a test. What you look for in a test pilot when you're sticking somebody into a, an experimental plane and asking them to fly it. Uh, that's got to be somebody that's going to be focused on getting that job done can adapt to you know a circumstance immediately uh, and is and, and can and can keep that goal firmly in mind it doesn't get distracted so those were all of our early astronauts and the fact that they were all similar in their personality profiles led the uh, the belief that maybe that's what we needed for space in general so we started looking around to see if that was true we had a very small sample size, very few individuals in which to base our belief that this was the right kind of person to select for future space crews. And so we started looking to see if that was going to hold up. Now, we didn't have a lot of people to test this on or to compare in space. We did notice that astronauts from other nationalities, like the Japanese astronauts and uh, the uh, Russian or the, at that time Soviet astronauts, looked very different on their personality uh, profile. So that began to raise the issue that, that maybe the American model was not necessarily the only model or the best model. When we started going to our analog environments here on Earth to test out those those uh, personality characteristics, we went to Antarctica, we looked at submarines, we looked at offshore drilling rigs, we looked at mountain climbing teams, we looked at every single kind of individual that you can think of that was putting themselves into an extreme environment. And what we found out eventually, and what we realized eventually, is that there was not one size that fit all, that different people did better in some environments than other environments. 
And then we begin to look at well, what is it about those environments that's common across deserts and mountains and and polar regions, that type of thing. What we came to realize is it was the duration of the mission. It was the kind of mission that was the most important factor. That isn't to say there aren't lots of other factors that played into it, but a long duration mission requires a different kind of person than a short duration mission. And I call the short duration mission expeditionary missions. These are these are missions where you're you're going to walk to the North Pole. You know, every day you're going to get up, you're going to walk X number of kilometers, you're going to camp you're going to set up camp. You're going to do the things, eat, sleep, get ready for the next day. You're going to get up and do the same thing, make your next goal, do the same thing until you reach that ultimate goal of reaching the, the North or South Pole. These are expedition. They're mo- they're moving all the time. So in other words, in they're con- so focused on, I mean, they have to do so many kilometers a day, uh, even if they're mentally bored, so to speak, they, they have to walk, they have to focus on their task right. at hand, whereas in an ISS situation, if they're if they're trying to set some sort of record for medical purposes, like some people, some some crew members have, frankly, they're they're probably going to get bored. You're sitting up on ISS and you've got this whole schedule that, when you decide to go do the experiment, you can do it anytime in the next seven days. Right. So you have this time to decide when to do things, and so there's a lot of flexibility. That means there's a lot of downtime. Um, and for you to to fill in with other things, when and the evidence for this became it's, it's just slowly emerged from all these different environments. Luckily, at the time, uh, there for research purposes only, uh, all these personality data and these are tests were being given to astronauts. Uh, who are applying to be astronauts, individuals who are applying to be astronauts, and then those who got selected. It was these personality profiles were not used for selection. What was used for selection was the standard, what we call select out criteria. You had psychiatrists and clinical individuals evaluate your mental stability and those kinds of things. There was the, you know, medical qualifications, if you had anything that was going to disqualify you on the medical side. Those were the things that were going to select you out. But once you were accepted in the core, the astronaut core, then they started looking at these personality profiles. And once the suspicion came um, about that maybe it was missions that made a difference, they started looking at performance. Who did well on the shuttle missions, which were all very short duration missions, two weeks at the most. Right. Who was doing well on International Space Station, which was three months or more. So, and they began noticing that the personality profiles fell in line with the individuals who did well on short duration missions versus those who were doing well on long duration missions. And so they begin, and we call these the select-in criteria and so the select in criteria began to be used to assign already selected astronauts to whether they were going to be shuttle or whether they're going to be ISS and this is the the first point at which we started fitting the individuals to the mission demands but let's uh, go beyond low earth orbit a bit we know there are two fixed goals in space beyond low earth orbit one is to make lunar shuttle flights kind of a you know, right. r- routine. 
not in an Apollo type sense, but maybe some sort of vehicle where you could have six to 10, maybe 15 people, you make it a little bit more comfortable, you know, or, 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 mm-hmm. or let's get there faster somehow. I think getting there faster is better, uh, but that's going to require nuclear propulsion. I think you could even do nuclear propulsion uh, to and from the moon. You could fear you could have you could have the thing permanently parked either in uh, lunar orbit or Earth orbit. You know, use it to, as a quick means uh, to get to the moon in 24 hours instead of three days. Now, right. I think the same thing is going to have to be done for Mars. Turn that six to eight month trip into a three to four month trip. What do we need to do to provide for a a crew that's heading to Mars psychological well-being while en route? Things that we are beginning to believe are critically important are the same things that we're beginning to believe are critically important for even a Mars base or a lunar base, is that we have to move beyond just putting in the elements for a crew to survive. We need to put in those elements that a crew is going to need in order to thrive. Now, defining what those the difference in those two uh, goals are, surviving versus thriving, is pretty much the focus of most of the research that's going on right now. For instance, we know a lot of things that are problematic. We don't necessarily have all the answers to how we are we going to address them. But let me give you an example. Uh, early on, when uh, there were no private bedrooms. On Mir, there were private bedrooms for the two Russian astronauts, but once we started having uh, international crews members come up, they literally just stuck their bedrolls on some quarter and that was kind of not in the path of things that needed to be done, and that's where they slept. Good Lord. This, this was just a, it was inadequate, but it was simply what they had to work with at the time. It became obvious uh, that people needed their own space, no matter how tiny it was. They needed their own cubby. They needed their own sleep pod. They needed their own place that they could call theirs. And once that became evident, then there was efforts made to carve out sleeping spaces. And when ISS was built, there was they literally designed individual sleeping spaces for each astronaut that ability to have your own space to call yours gave a sense of privacy and gave a sense of ownership and made this just camping situation where you just stuck your bedroll up on a wall made it into a, a resident we know that psychologically that is a huge benefit that when people feel like they own a space and they have control over a space, they are psychologically much better, much stabler, much more grounded, much happier than if they're just camping. They're just stuck someplace and they're just making do with whatever they have to make do with. So privacy, ownership of, a, of their own space, these are things that can be designed in to a ship, into a habitat, and to a base. And that Things like this are going to be the critical differences in whether they only focus on survival, which we're already doing, or they move into thriving. And the long-duration missions are going to require those thriving elements to be in place. As I mentioned in Forbes, there have been several attempts at recreating Mars-like mission conditions here on Earth. And their success, quote, is 
arguably limited by their nature. Uh, one of the most ambitious, Mars 500, a simulated 520-day Russian-European Space Agency ESA mission to Mars experiment at the Institute of Biomedical Problems in Moscow, sought to recreate the isolation, confinement, and communication challenges an actual six-member Mars crew would face. And that program ran from 2010 to 2011. And you noted that Mars 500 participants, you told me in Forbes that they all knew that if the building caught fire, they would be evacuated to safety. And by contrast, Antarctica winter overs at research bases make far better Mars models. Isolation at Antarctica begins the moment the base is shut down for the winter and the summer teams leave, you told me. You can't not know that you can leave a habitat or a simulation facility at any point in time, it becomes dangerous. I mean, you can't not know that. If you know you're sitting at Hera, you know you're sitting at the IBMP facility in Russia, and an emergency happens, you know all you have to do is push open that door and walk out, and then you'll be safe. That's not true in Antarctica. If you're during the winter and the base catches fire and you have to run outside that base, you have 10 to 15 minutes to find adequate shelter or you're going to be dead. That's a very short period of time in the middle of an emergency to get somewhere safe. So that whole extreme environment component where you have an environment that will literally kill you if you are out in it, that sense of danger, that sense of threat is a much better analog for space where if we have a fire on board as we did on Mir and they could not have put it out, they would have died. Right. And that's not in place at most simulation facilities because they are uh, not operational environments. And ethically, we can't put them in situations where we say, if something goes wrong, you're going to die. That's why we think Antarctica is a good analog. Um, it, it doesn't have microgravity. That's no terrestrial analog is going to qualify on that level. But it does have the threat. It does have that threat um, factor in which uh, your survival is at risk. And if you don't you know, know the safety procedures, if you don't know where the equipment is, if you don't know where you know, the exit is and that kind of thing under a, an emergency, then you're putting yourself and your life at risk. Same thing is on ISS or on Mir or the lunar bases or Mars bases. We're, you're going to have to know what you can do in, in, uh, under a state of emergency and where you can go for safety. Um, you just can't walk out. You can't leave. You can't just run outside. There's no breathable air. The, you know, the environment will kill you. Um, so the, in that sense, when our, we send people down to Antarctica, they are – as close as we can get here on Earth to the kinds of conditions that we think are going to be uh, very important things to know once we get into space. So uh, as for conflicts during flight or on orbit, it seems that the triggers are most likely to cause an argument on orbit are arguments over use of hygiene facilities. You mentioned to me in the pre-interview that uh, you were at a conference and someone came up to you after your talk and told you a story about what happened aboard a seven-day orbital mission, or did I get that wrong? 
I, I don't uh, want you to it implicate. It was a shuttle it. mission. Yeah. Uh, so it was a shuttle mission. We won't we won't say which one for for the sake of <laughs> okay. anonim, for the person's anonymity. But tell us this. Tell us that story. Lockheed had pulled together a opportunity for individuals from various professions to meet and to talk about what they knew, what they needed to know, what the kind of research was needed and that kind of thing. And at this was in the early 90s. And at that point in time, um, they actually invited um, us from psychology and the behavioral scientists, psychiatry, psychology, and uh, other behavioral scientists to be one of the, the panels, one of the groups, which was a first. Um, and we were delighted to finally be brought to the table in a, in a kind of a formal manner and recognize that we had something to contribute. While we were meeting uh, this group of behavioral scientists, uh, one of the current astronauts at that point uh, kind of quietly stepped into the room and introduced himself. And he said, I just want to take a moment to tell you that there are many of us in the Corps who are absolutely relieved and delighted that we are finally bringing the psychologists and the behavioral scientists on board for this process. And, and then he kind of made a, a joke. He said, well, I'll tell you, like on a recent seven-day mission, if it had been one more day, if it had been eight days, we may have come back with one member short. Uh, <laughs> and we all laughed appropriately. And then he said, it, in seriousness, he says, let me tell you how, how important this is. He says, when we return from that mission, every single crew member voluntarily went and visited the NASA psychiatrist. Now, this was uh, almost literally shocking because no astronaut would voluntarily ever visit the flight surgeon or the NASA psychologist because those are the kinds of individuals that could disqualify you from future flights. So whatever the issue was, and he did not divulge in any particulars, uh, it must have been distressing enough that an entire crew felt like they had to go to outside help to get it resolved. Does it make sense to incorporate some sort of greenhouse or meditation chamber on a trip to Mars or even on routine shuttle flights to the moon and back or maybe at the lunar south pole when we actually have a base? Absolutely, yes, although I'm, I'm not going to limit it to just a greenhouse. We know that exposure to natural uh, elements has a beneficial impact. Um, that's why the green movement has wanted to incorporate green ring into hospitals and to other, other environments that are uh, characterized by high stress. What the fascinating thing is that there has been some recent evidence that when we ask why, why do natural, natural elements have this beneficial impact? The most recent, there's been several lines of, of, of uh, research that are kind of converging to suggest that the reason why humans respond to natural elements is because of what we call these fractal properties. The, the imagery makeup or composition is the, um, the, the kind of things that we evolved on the savannas to recognize as either beneficial elements. Oh, there's those trees over there. That means water. Okay, the trees also mean if there's water, there's predators there. We evolved to recognize these elements as beneficial or potentially dangerous 
in such a way that our cognitive processing actually happens easier and faster and more automatic when we see these elements. Now, if that's true, if it's if it's certain characteristics of the things that we're looking at that we have a preference for, that we cognitively process stimuli faster. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a tree or a plant or a flower. There are are lots of things about nature that are also beneficial. So we're not saying that this is the only thing. But if these fractal properties are important, we can design these things into the structure of our spaceship or of our base in such a way that we still get the beneficial impact without actually having to have a growing plant there. When I was working on a project for the British Interplanetary Society um, in the uh, early 2000s, it was called Project Boreas, and we designed a Mars base. And one of the things that I and another architect proposed was to build a multi-environmental chamber. This was a sauna-sized chamber that you could go in, and you could program for the lighting, you could program for odors, you could program for humidity. You wanted a day at the beach, then you went in there and you dialed in the right humidity, the right sunlight, the right breeze blowing across you, the smells, and you laid there and you had the sounds of the surf rolling over you. You had the visual walls all around you of the seashore and those kinds of things. If you wanted a forest, you did the same thing, and it was big enough so that more than one person could be in this chamber. We're going to need places like that, that we can virtually or multi-sensorily dial in uh, environments that have elements that humans find pleasing and pleasant and relaxing. Till we yes find a, a Star Trek-style <laughs> holodeck, uh, we're going to have to do this, right? The other thing that is really a big thing for me is lighting harsh lighting mm-hmm. i detest it i don't like the big box stores because i don't like that harsh lighting if you go into a restaurant particularly in the south and it sounds like we're both originally from the south if you go to a catfish house on a friday night <laughs> and you're you're eating you know the seafood platter and you have these harsh lights overhead like the no matter how good the food is if, if I'm sitting right. underneath a fluorescent, you know, just two fluorescent bulbs or a single bulb, it's like it ruins my dining experience. I'm sorry, you know. Absolutely. I mean, particularly for restaurants because you really don't have to spend that much money. And the same would uh, would go for, for spacecraft. Uh, I mean, basically, they're just hollowed out holes with, with instrumentation and, and, and electronic decks and stuff like that. Basically, lighting. With all the develop, with all the advances in LED lighting and and mood lighting, at yada yada right. yada, full spectrum lighting. That's exactly. Right. There's no alcohol allowed in space, right? I do think that they have uh, permitted some uh, kind of celebratory, uh, a bottle of champagne uh, upon occasion or a bottle of wine upon occasion. I know that um, the international crews are much more. Uh, relaxed about that kind of <laughs> yeah, issue nasa it does you know but nasa doesn't always have control over you know the non-american part of iss so. right yeah 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 i can imagine there's been some pepper vodka passed around up there right absolutely absolutely is there any sort of recreation aside from video games 
that can be readily played in space, like space ping pong, netball. Well, I'm going to say that humans are are absolutely ingenious when it comes to uh, creating games from whatever they have available. Uh, we know that the astronauts, whenever they bring up a new module, before they start putting all the racks on the walls and those kinds of things and kind of outfitting it out, will take a period of time and just leave it empty and then go in there and they do all these zero-G gymnastics. They bounce around, they, they turn flips, you know, because it's the seeing the largest uh, space without anything that you can destroy or kick or just or, or mess up for a short period of time. So they take that opportunity to play, you know, in this space. And uh, we know from Antarctica, I mean, they have they are almost infamous in the different kinds of events and holidays and activities and recreations that they've invented while down and locked up on, you know, on the ice for nine months. Uh, So I'm sure that uh, future space crews are going to find ways to play and to uh, invent recreational kinds of activities as we move forward. This is like the 800-pound gorilla in the room that we haven't mentioned yet. (laughs) As I noted in a Forbes article in 2012 in which you were quoted, how can NASA or anyone be sure that a member of a six- or seven-member Mars crew isn't going to blow a gasket halfway there? So, what about, in other words, what about a severe psychiatric episode? Well, I mean, that comes down, it really comes down to whether it's a short-term situation or a long-term situation, right? On a mission, to, some, on a mission to Mars, let's say. Right, but I meant the episode, like oh, the okay. severe psychiatric episode. If it's something that can be treated and remedied, right, um, it, it, it's almost easier to think about this. It, what if somebody had a traumatic accident? Uh, you know, you, 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 you do triage, you say... What are my chances of fixing this? Uh, how long is it going to take to fix it? What are the resources that are going to be required to fix this? If the answer is it's it can be fixed, it can be fixed with the resources that we have on hand, and the and the outcome will be a, a positive outcome, then you move forward with doing the things you need to move forward with. If the answer to any of those questions is I can't fix it or it's going to Uh, use up all available resources so there will be no resources left for anybody else or the outcome or prognosis is 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 poor then that whole difficult decision has to be made if somebody was diagnosed with cancer on the way to mars this is high low probability because it would obviously be caught but let's just take the most our heart condition, an undetected heart condition, they had a heart attack, they were comatose. There was no way that you could do open heart surgery, uh, you know, on this mission to Mars. You're not going to use up all of your medications and resources in order to try and preserve the life of this individual. You're going to have to make that hard decision to let them die. If we're talking about a psychiatric issue, it's harder because the outcome is not as cut and dried as with a physical situation. So there are no uh, black and white guidelines for how these decisions get made, but it will be a triage process. And uh, it will be determined by the hard, cold facts of, do you have enough resources to treat this individual? Is the individual likely to to return to functioning, at least a 
functional basis and which is not a threat to the rest of the crew and then make the decisions going forward. Every astronaut understands this. Every astronaut knows that they cannot put the rest of the crew at risk because of something that happens to them that would require the use of a very limited amount of resources. So it's um, the rest of the world that has a hard time getting their uh, head around this kind of an idea. But uh, as I noted in Forbes, to date, no astronaut has ever experienced Earth as just an insignificant dot in a celestial sea of darkness. Um, what about the out of the Earth out of view phenomenon? Could this trigger a marked sense of isolation and malaise? That's the concern. I mean, that's what we're worried about. Uh, we we know that the every almost every astronaut has unanimously reported that on their first mission on orbit, that seeing the Earth from from orbit has really been a powerful. Uh, view it has really significantly changed the way they looked at the world. What are they? What is going to be their frame of mind when they can look back and now Earth and every single thing that they have ever known, every single life form, every single individual, everything that they have known is this little dot in space, and all of a sudden they get this overwhelming sense of how small we are in the larger universe. How is that going to affect them? We don't know. We don't know. There's no way we can project this. Nobody could have predicted how seeing Earth from on orbit was going to affect other people and then the astronauts that have been on orbit. So uh, we can talk about it. We can imagine it. We can discuss it. But until we actually have individuals who experience that phenomenon, we are not going to know how it's going to affect people. And my guess is, is that it will affect different people somewhat differently. Some will be uh, profoundly affected by it and others will not be so profoundly. In your book, you write that in 1999, during a 110-day isolation study, there was actually a 10-minute bloody brawl between <laughs> male and male crew members and the only female crew member out of 10 men. It, it evolved from an attempt to force a New Year's Eve kiss on this poor woman. <laughs> that just seems outrageous. Uh, what actually happened was that there was a uh, New Year's vodka in, uh -huh. <laughs> involved and uh, that the attempt to kiss the only woman crew member, there were actually, uh, it's important to recognize the dynamics. There was, there, there was the Group one, who was four Russian crew members that had been in there on a 240-day mission. So they had been in resident for quite a long time before the international crew, which was actually the third group uh, that had a Canadian, the Canadian woman, uh, a Japanese. Um, and what, what mission uh, was this? What simulated mission was this? It, it was called Sfincess, S-F-I-N-C-S-S. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, like I said, it was three different groups that were rotated through with the Russian group being there the entire time. So they, by the time the Russian group, the four Russian men were going to be out, they would have been there 240 days. They were halfway through uh, this mission, I believe, just about halfway when, this, when the third group came in. So the third group was considered the visiting crew. They had their own quarters, and the Russians had their own quarters. And they had the New Year's party. Some vodka was involved. During the party, one of the Group 1 Russian male members attempted to kiss the only woman there. 
um, uh, from the international group. She rejected his advances. Um, there was some words exchanged. They went back to their own quarters, and then an argument broke out between two uh, Russian crew members, the um, the kisser, and one of the others, in which was a the <laughs> reference bloody brawl fist fight. Um, the international crew members, the the woman complained to Mission Control. Oh, okay. Now this is where so it was, yeah, this it, is where it was only one person, one guy who tried to kiss this woman, a crew member. One, was yes, one Russian, oh, okay. uh, the long duration member who tried to kiss the woman. Okay. She said no. He got you know a little rejected, and then the, a fight <laughs> broke out between two males on over the issue. Oh, uh, when they complained, when they complained to Mission Control, and this is where things went south. Up until that point, it, it was probably an incident that could have been. Um, handled diplomatically and everything resolved and everybody's feelings assuaged. But when the, when the woman and the international crew complained to Mission Control, which was all Russian, the Russian attitude was, ah, oh, boys will be boys. I mean, it's just a kiss. I mean, come on, it's New Year's Eve, you know. So they were very dismissive about it. And, and like, ah, you know. Uh, and which is... Uh, you know, very, very. Uh, I I don't find that shocking at all. I I no, believe that. No, any, I, I don't either. <laughs> you know, you know. And, and, but what happened was is that that upset the international crew who felt like they were not being taken seriously because the fight broke out between the two crew members, uh, male crew members, and that type of thing. Tensions elevated and escalated pretty fast. When the international, and you got to remember, in, in confined environments, I say this over and over again, little things become big things. Things that in the normal day, the normal you know, flow of, of operations, uh, without being confined, you would not even think twice about. When you are confined, these issues all of a sudden became big deals. And so when they complained and they were essentially dismissed, they turn around and complain to their national agencies. Right. Now you have it outside the, the, the immediate project. The national agencies come back and say, what's going on here? You know, what's this sexual harassment that's going on? It's gone from a kiss to now something more. Uh, because tensions got elevated, they ended up locking the door in between the two groups and convening a mediation team that they flew to Russia to talk to the two groups. Good In gosh. the meantime, the Japanese uh, participant on the international group got so disgusted with the whole process that he bailed on, on the project. He left right. with, the, with the blessing of his, of his country. Okay. And so that made the, the newspapers, you know, Japanese participant leaves over sexual advance and the media got hold of it. It got escalated even further. Uh, the mediation team came in. They managed to calm things down and get both sides to agree to at least finish out the project, open the doors and continue moving forward. But what, um, uh, what nationality was a female crew member? Canadian. Uh, okay. Let's talk about the other 800-pound gorilla in the room, which we haven't <laughs> mentioned. Has there been any sex in space that involved more than one person? Not that anybody is going to admit to. That's the short answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I figured you'd say that. 
<laughs> I, you know, nobody is going to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was the married couple that got sent up, and NASA was, you know, going to extraordinary lengths to make it clear that there is no opportunity. They were on different shifts while one was sleeping, the other one was on the other shift, you know. Uh, but even so, you know, people will say, well, you know, if I was a crew member on that group, I would say, hey, guys, we'll give you all 15 minutes in the airlock or something out of sight of the cameras. Right. So, but aside the, from that, aside from that married, aside from that married couple, what's your <laughs> gut sense of that? I'm not talking about married couples. <laughs> so come on, give us the scoop. Uh, there is no scoop. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I, speculate. Uh, do you? Uh, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I think that it's, it, it is highly unlikely that it would have involved American crew members because they are so concerned with maintaining their flight status. Right. They would not have judged that to be worth the risk. Right. Now, you have all the internationals um, who have very different cultural attitudes about this. They're not as uptight about the whole issue. Uh and if they were only going to be flying one time, they may have said, well, why not? Why Why wouldn't I? Uh, if that had happened, I would have thought that by now somebody would have said, yeah, me, I'm the first one to have sex in space. So, um, you know, uh, I, the fact that it, somebody hasn't claimed it yet makes me think that it's probably nobody's had the guts to do it. <laughs> right. So. If you had the name five factors that you think are the most important in mitigating socio-psychological risk in a real-life off-world environment, what would they be? All right. First, I think that we need to build a habitat. And when I say habitat, I don't care if it's a ship, a base, whatever. But build our habitats that foster well-being. Now, that's a huge number one because there's a whole bunch of things that have to go into that to make that true. Two, I think we need to compose our crew of individuals that are best fit to adapt to the isolation, confinement, and extreme environment stresses. That not everybody is best fit for that. So we need to do a good job of identifying what makes people hardy, what makes people adaptable, and put together individuals that have those kinds of abilities. Three, we need to train the crew in generalized methods to deal with all kinds of issues. For instance, we need to it, – it, it, it doesn't do any good to say, well, when someone insults you, you do X. Conflict is going to happen. So what we need to do is to say, when tensions are arising among group, here are some things that y'all might do to bring it out to the open, to talk about it to problem solve about it and to figure out how you're going to to smooth things over. So we give them the tools to manage the issues and not specific instructions that goes down a checklist, all right? Four, we need to provide them the necessary tools to self-monitor. How do I know if I'm getting a little stressed out? Well, I should be able to self-monitor myself through an AI, through tests, through whatever. But we also need the processes in place to cross-check. I need to know if one of my teammates is getting too overly stressed so that I can help, I can step in and help. So we need self-monitoring and we need cross-validation by other crew members because we're only going to have 
the crew members that we have with us. We're not going to be able to call back to Earth and say, oh, well, so-and-so is feeling a little stressed. It's a 20-minute delay communication-wise one way and then 20 minutes back from Mars. So five, we need to make sure that our team is, uh, our group is a team and not a, just a working group. Being a team is a different mindset, right? Being a team means that these people are like family to you. These people are essential to you. You are as concerned about their well-being as you are concerned about your well-being. If they're just a work group, they're just people that you, that you that need to help you get a task done, then there are going to be some critical holes in that whole well-being and the ability to respond to know when somebody is getting uh, needs a little bit of personal help and stepping in. Those are the five big ones. So finally, what worries you most when thinking about sending astronauts to Mars? Well, I'm going to say something you probably don't expect, but I'm going to say the current societal attitudes about failure. You know, there are a lot of expeditionary and exploratory missions when we were exploring the poles, when we were exploring our oceans and those types of things that failed. People died. For whatever reason, um, the attitudes about space missions and failure in space missions has uh, gone too far in the direction that any failure is unacceptable. There will be failures. There will be more Columbias. There will be more Challengers. There will be people who die on exploratory missions to Mars and, and even our lunar missions. And people just need to accept that. The astronauts understand it. They understand what they have signed up for. They understand the risk. And if they are willing to put their lives at risk, then we as a society need to be ready to honor that and find a way to move forward when those unfortunate events happen, because they will happen. It's just simply part of the exploratory process. Cheryl, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or to learn more? Um, I think the best uh, way to do it, I'm registered on LinkedIn, and that would be the easiest way to just easily search for me and send me a message or drop me a line, and I can always get back in contact with you and let you know if there's a better way for us to communicate. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Cheryl L. Bishop, thanks for giving us a better understanding of socio-psychological challenges facing long-term human spaceflight. Thank you, Bruce. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>